we cannot live for the sake of work. So it can't be that we define our whole existence based on what we do, or that we see somehow that you know our career is like that is our life. So this identification uh, that we see so commonly, you know, of people identifying their whole life with their career. So I think that that is what he is saying is that's not natural. So that that's that somehow you've turned your career or your work into an end in itself, and that will necessarily bring you frustration. Hey, this is Sharif here with another episode of The Golden Hour, joined by Dr. Kevin Majors. Kevin, good to be back here with you again. Hey, Sharif, great to be back. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin, I thought uh, as we approach the summertime, you know, it'd be a great thing to, for us to talk about rest. And I was recently reading Yosef uh, Pieper's Leisure, the Basis of Culture, and I thought it was interesting, his treatment of work and rest and leisure. So I thought we could uh, discuss some of those themes here today. Um, and maybe just to start with the idea of of rest, and sometimes uh, we talk about it as you know resting in between sprints or golden hours, in between times of work, in order to get your energy back so that you can work even better. And he kind of, <clears throat> in some ways, militantly opposes that idea. <laughs> he, yeah. he sees actually leisure is higher, so you shouldn't rest for the sake of work. Actually, you should work for the sake of rest or leisure. So I'm interested to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, well, the first thing is that when he, you have to define the terms. So when he's talking about work, <clears throat> he's specifically talking about things that you do for some other end. So things that don't have some kind of intransitive value attached to them that stays within you, but it's just do it's just like what you actually accomplish and get done or the transitive good of work. So he has this idea that uh, basically work is all just about um, being a worker and getting things done. And that should be for the sake of something that's more inherently free. So something that you do for its own sake. And that's what leisure is. So it's by it's his definition actually is that leisure are all those things you do for their own sake, and then work is all those things you do for the sake of something else. So I think that's the first distinction is that there's a different use of words here. But now that said, that's a completely different sense I think than what we than in optimal work than what we talk about, where we think of work as having much more like higher capacity and dimensions to it, and I think he would say that we're actually teaching people how to turn work into leisure. Right. Yeah, that that was going to be my next question is, is it is it possible to turn work into leisure? So I guess you've already answered that. You said yes. Uh, so how, how exactly does that happen? I guess one way that seems obvious or apparent to me is that by focusing on what you call the, the intransitive uh, dimension of work, it's like how it affects you, how you're growing, how you're living your ideals, uh, that 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 makes work an end in itself. It's like just this valuable activity. It's a good thing to do. Um, but at the same time, work always you wouldn't be working if you weren't kind of serving someone else. So there seems like with work, there does always have to be at least this dimension 
that you're creating something external to you that's going to benefit someone else. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. See, so there is this dimension of work that is absolutely necessary for the world. And it's absolutely necessary, you know, and so these things have to be done, you know, and so we have to be able to feed ourselves and clothe ourselves and take care of ourselves and have shelters and all the things that go in, into life require this kind of, you know, some, some form of work. I think what I like most about his formulation, if you're going to put it that way, is that we cannot live for the sake of work. So it can't be that we define our whole existence based on what we do or that we see somehow that, you know, our career is like, that is our life. So this identification uh, that we see so commonly, you know, of people identifying their whole life with their career. So I think that that is what he is saying is that's not natural. So that that's that somehow you've turned your career or your work into an end in itself, and that will necessarily bring you frustration. So I think all of that to me is exactly good. Is that um, kind of what you were asking about? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, now, oftentimes when I meet people, one of the first questions I ask is, "What do you do? Should I stop doing that?" <laughs> You can ask them, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then critique their answer if it's not deep yeah. enough. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a fine, it's a fine way of, of getting to know someone and what they do. And, you know, but the in fact, the more interesting question is, why why did you choose that? So a lot of times, like these things, like what you do for a living is interesting insofar as it reflects your actual priorities and choices. And like, what were you most interested in? What attracted you the most about that kind of job? I think that, that that's always interesting. Okay. Okay. So, so then, uh, so getting back to this idea of, of rest and leisure. Um, so wh what is leisure, leisure? I mean, and, and how is it distinct, distinct from when we say, Hey, in, be in between golden hours, you have 10 minutes, so you can use that to read. And that's a great use of that time. And it rests your brain so that you're not staring at a screen and you're not trying to achieve some outcome. And so that's going to help you get into the next task. But but that's not leisure. Yeah. So it's really central that leisure are all the things you do for their own sake. So spending time with family, you know, and friends and just enjoying their company, he would call that true leisure. Because while it's true that like if you have strong family bonds and friendship bonds, that you are going to have better health outcomes, it would be completely wrong to try to have like a better relationship so that you have better health outcomes. It's like that would be upside down. So and so what he's what he's saying is, you know, these things have to be done for their own sake because they're good in themselves. So just like, you know, the Tower Vanderweel and Human Flourishing, they have all this great data on religious participation. You know, and and the health benefits of religious practice, but people would caution and say, but we could never try to like say that's why we do religious practice. In fact, he specifically says that in the in the book, you know, that that would get that would turn the world upside down to do those practices for the fact that you sleep twenty percent better at night, <laughs> or you you know you you know, or you have fewer inflammatory diseases, and all these things that you can track, you know, with. Uh, good religious practice. So, so the leisure means that these are things that are inherently meaningful to do. 
And in Optimorg, we talk about things that basically that help you grow and help you to serve others. That in some way, you have to be transcending yourself. And you do that in two ways. One way of self-transcendence is growing. So you're growing past what you are now into this better future you. So that's, that is a kind of self-transcendence. And then also then through the bonds that you have with others, that those bonds are a means of self-transcendence. So interestingly, when you look at his idea of leisure as a kind of um, a form of rest that's active, that you actually have to work, that leisure makes demands on us, that we have to be worthy of leisure in a sense. Like, so if you're just living for YouTube, he would not consider YouTube to be leisure at all. So just and like entertainment is not leisure. Entertainment you do in order to rest, you do it for the sake of something else. So, but leisure is done because it's important in itself. And that's why I think only goods that are actually lasting, that are intransitive, that means they stay within us, like our growth and virtues and the bonds in our life, those things are lasting. You know, I think those are the things that are ends in themselves. So true leisure then means that it should be helping you to grow, which is a bit of a paradox. Yeah, yeah you, you get this sense a little bit in his book that he's talking, when he talks about leisure, he has especially in mind intellectual pursuits. I think he uses the word philosophy a, a lot as an example of leisure and poetry. Um, does it oh, does it have to be like he he doesn't talk very much about family life as leisure? I'm not even sure he mentions it once. Uh, Isn't that interesting? He never mentions anything about service, like like what's the purpose of work, and is that actually something that is transcendent? So the view of work in the book is actually entirely negative. Because work for him is entirely doing things for outcomes. So, you know, and so I think that that kind of is true that people get enslaved to outcomes and that that kind of slavery, you know, he calls servile work. Um, but it's also like I, he, I think, would call it idolatry as well, you know, that there's this kind of sense of serving idols, you know, like you're, you're a slave to these outcomes, you know, and he is really against this idea of total work which the book was written in 1946 to 48. Uh, and so he had in mind total war, I think, you know, that this idea that everything in a country, because he was writing, writing in Germany, uh, is committed to the war effort. And he, he was saying that we have to recall men and women from total work, total work being where your whole life is just about your career and just about the outcomes you're attaining. And he's like, no, what you need instead is the ability not to be active, but to be passive and to be passive to the goodness of the world. So he saw leisure as a metaphysical practice, opening yourself up to the goodness of being so that you can contemplate it. And so he sees this twofold contemplation of truth and goodness um, or being, you could say, all of that in his mind is like, so contemplation is really the activity you do in leisure. So, and it's a, um, so he has this long discussion, which is very interesting, you know, about um, Immanuel Kant and this idea that all reasoning is actually discursive reasoning. And Pieper says, no, there's this, you also have this intellection 
or just this beholding that the mind does when it attains to truth. Uh, and so this is like a much deeper discussion about f philosophical contemplation. So what, what it means to do that. So, I, But just to say that anything that's truly contemplation in Pieper's mind, that is actually leisure. And so if you can contemplate while doing it, then that's true leisure. And so art, philosophy, worship, family, in some senses, all of those can allow for this. You know, and he clearly says that worship is the highest, and that's what the whole end of the book is about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that he has this kind of uh, democratic or egalitarian view. You know, earlier I mentioned that he talks about you know philosophy as and poetry as as leisure, which makes it maybe sound inaccessible for a lot of people. Oh, I don't. I don't really want to spend my evenings reading, you know, Immanuel Kant or something like that. It doesn't strike <laughs> yeah. me as leisurely, but yes, that he sees leisure as this kind of like passive, receptive openness to to being and beauty. And so it's not so much about performing difficult tasks, like you don't have to be a great artist or a great philosopher, you know, to to think your way through all these hard problems, but it's more just about appreciating the work that other people have done or appreciating a beautiful piece of music or a beautiful piece of art, that that is, is real leisure. Um, and he is showing the deep like tradition in, I guess you could say like the Western canon of, of um, appreciating being overdoing. And so this idea that you know, work is about doing for him and leisure is about being. So when you read, if at any, like one, if you're, if people are going to like read Leisure, the Basis of Culture, uh, which I highly recommend, it's a great and short book, uh, substitute leisure um, with the word mindfulness. And it works almost the entire way through. So the, he, what he's talking about is engaging with what is without putting your own judgment on it for what it should be or trying to change it to what you want it to be. So just let go of getting things done and learn how to savor what is. And that, he says, is the essence of leisure. So, and that is the opposite, he says, of idleness. So he has an interesting discussion of idleness and sloth uh, that uh, as the opposite of actual true leisure. Uh, and so um, we can talk a little bit about those those things. I think that's a, if people have read other works by Joseph Pieper, usually the one that they've read is On Hope, where he talks about achadia uh, or sloth, and, uh, and that there are these two forms of sloth. One is the more um, flaccid kind of, uh, you know, overly relaxed, lethargic kind of sloth. Uh, but much more common is the hyperactive, busy sloth. Right, which seems to be the the opposite, I think, of most people's image of laziness or sloth is yeah. to so the, the idea the of someone working constantly. Yeah, yeah. So the workaholic was actually seen as slothful in the Middle Ages, and it's because they were. Um, so the the masters in the Middle Ages, and the same in Aristotle said the same, but it's a kind of and, and Plato is a kind of spiritual laziness. So if people aren't striving for higher realities. You know, if they're not striving for higher truths and, and actually um, to surpass themselves and ex somehow to go beyond being merely human to being superhuman, 
And the contemplative life, according to Aquinas and Aristotle, was seen as a superhuman mode of life that was open to men. So to not desire contemplation was seen as sloth. And to busy yourself with work so that you can't contemplate higher things was seen as the, that, that's, what the, that's what sloth does. And the effect of that is eventually despair, uh, that you end up despairing of higher things. So the opposite of sloth is the virtue of magnanimity. So, and so magnanimity being very much of what we talk about all the time in, in optimal work, you know, this idea of sincerely seeking things that are stretch you above there above you, the ideals and the bonds that then you change yourself according to, forgetting about yourself, giving yourself totally. So all those virtues of self, of, you know, the, the parts of magnanimity are ways of exceeding yourself yeah, and and, and w- those are all the ways you excel. Mm-hmm. Could could we return to this topic of you know, or the, the distinction between leisure and maybe idleness or laziness or something? I mean, this is probably a, a problem with myself, but uh, like I think Peeper gives the example of you know contemplating a rose or something like that uh that you should just you should just be able to appreciate a rose and how beautiful it is without you know dissecting it and trying to figure out exactly what color it is or how many petals it has or something like that like that would be turning the view you know the contemplation of the rose into work um but i just i can't imagine spending the whole day you know like inspecting a like just contemplating a rose or something like that i mean at some like you can do that for a couple minutes or something but it would, if, and if someone said, hey, I spent my whole day doing that, I would just kind of start to think it was a little weird. Uh, maybe they were <laughs> lazy or idle or whatever you want to call it, or just weird. Um, so I don't know yeah. if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, it uh, it does seem like the idea that you could spend a whole day contemplating a rose would seem like some kind of misplaced appreciation of a rose <laughs> yeah. so yeah okay. and it's placed in the hole <laughs> okay so it seems to me that you want to move to deeper and deeper things so you know and so uh contemplation then on the one hand is this opening yourself up to being so that you can savor it so and the contemplation of truth the contemplation of god those are like the, the much deeper realities of contemplation uh and in that sense, it is the goal of every action. You know, what does it mean then to be a totally rooted in doing what you think is best, you know, and, and, and striving for that um, with a sense of kind of fidelity to the truth and a fidelity to, you know, to God and to ha- acting in the deepest ways with, with the highest motives. So those things can be present in, in daily life. And even just the being, eventually all being has a capital B. And so to be aware of what is, you know, and how it's being upheld. So that's what Pieper is saying has to be the goal eventually then of leisure. You know, and and that's why it's the basis of culture, uh, which is to say of cult. So that that all leisure is in fact about... um, what do you have your heart centered on and what are you treating as an end in itself? So, but then I think he always uses leisure though in the, in like where it's always the right way. So it's when the, the highest things, 
Well, what to me is surprisingly missing in 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 uh, his discussion of leisure is precisely this idea of charity and the bond. So that where is the discussion of like our what about our relationship with others? If our being, you know, participates, you know, in being with the capital B, you know, then also our love participates in love with capital L, and that's always like the traditional sense that we have. You know, um, we open up to these deep reservoirs or caverns within us, you know, of ultimate reality. So, but the love dimension, which is really how we, that would be the goal of work and the reason why we work, hopefully so that we're wanting to like provide the best service we can that really makes others' lives better, you know, and we're wanting to provide a better life for our family and all these things. So it seems like can't love itself be brought into every action? You know, and don't we change in a permanent way, in a way that's transtemporal, when we pattern ourselves on love and ideals? And why is that all missing? Like, why does he not see that work actually can be profoundly transformative? And that in fact, there's nothing that is purely servile work. Everything is liberal arts in the sense of shaping us for things that are ends in themselves. Yeah. So, okay, he at one point, you know, points out that uh, we love doing difficult things and kind of having the sense that what we achieve is like our own effort. And he really cautions against that view. He says, because I think what he's trying to say is that, you know, life or, know, life is more about uh, kind of receiving and appreciating the gifts of life and of being put with all these amazing people around you and with the, the gift of nature. And so what he's pointing to is the importance of just just like receive all that. And it's not about what you do. Uh, is that is that that's, what he's saying? Well, and that's actually where he discusses love. And maybe that's what you're you're also getting at, where he's talking about that. In fact, it's love that makes things effortless, but makes them more meritorious. So you can't think that something is meritorious to the extent, or meaning, or like basically praiseworthy now in, in eternity, that it's praiseworthy um, to the extent that it's difficult. And and it's that, in fact, the difficult and the good, Aquinas says, are two different things. And so something isn't more good because it's more difficult. Now, it could be that in a given case, if you're doing something really difficult and you do it easily, that actually shows the excellence of love and that that's what makes it meritorious. So love is the ultimate basis of merit. So to do things with more love is to make them more meritorious and paradoxically to make them more effortless. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay, yeah, so so there's this this point that in in giving, say in ser loving and ser in serving and doing things for others, that love makes it easier and they're more therefore more, more meritorious. Seems like he's what he's adding another dimension to that, which is almost like I would totally disagree with, which is like it's better to receive than to give. Mm. That he's saying it's yeah, better to like contemplation is about receiving in terms of being passive, just receiving mm -hmm. the truth, receiving beauty and you just appreciate it as opposed to to giving. Yeah. I guess you would say that what is received is greater than what is given. And so, and that's recognizing the gift of it. 
So, but yes, for our part, it's always better to give than to simply receive. So you have to, it makes, um, it has to call forth then a response in us. But I think that contemplation um, has this dual nature in that it's fully passive and fully active. So in some ways, like mindfulness itself. So interesting that mindfulness isn't used as a way of falling asleep because it keeps you awake. So mindfulness is activating, but it's activating in an interesting way that just opening up to feel a sensation of, say, the pulsing of the blood in your whole body and to, and to feel that all at once, that actually is seems passive, but it's more active. And so it, uh, that, that's enough to, wait, to keep people awake at night. So there's a special kind of mindfulness you use to fall asleep. Uh, you know, that, uh, um, we have an episode on that, on the skills of sleep. But that's the same kind of thing where it's passive and active at the same time. And that's the way contemplation has always been seen. So the, on the one hand, it's totally received. But on the other hand, it requires a total response or an opening and giving of your heart and mind. So ultimately, though, what that means is that what you're giving, the exact form it takes, matters less than that you're giving everything. And so it doesn't matter then for contemplation that you're just sitting there doing it or what you're giving is to do the next right thing at the next moment. You can still be contemplating while doing that. So that there is a sense in which uh, what you are giving back in contemplation can be is every action that you're doing. And that's why like work and prayer can become the same thing. You know, because it's you know, it's like what you're receiving is so much greater than than what you're giving. And what you're giving is just whatever is the right thing at that moment to give. And you almost get indifferent to the content of what's being given. And there's just the process of giving totally while receiving, you know, like in response to receiving totally. But this could be this could sound abstract maybe if people you know haven't read um The Cloud of Unknowing or other works like that that talk about this way of thinking about contemplation. That's, that's definitely the way that Pieper understands leisure, though, is that to really understand leisure, you want to read books on contemplation to understand that. And I think books like um, The Secret Paths of Divine Love, and there are all these other classic works on contemplation that um, operationalize this a little more. You know, and, uh, and so that's probably the, the, the note to end on, though. Yeah, perfect. Wonderful, Kevin. Uh, thanks so much. I think it's a nice high note to end on. All right. For the, that should hold us through the summer then. That's right. That's right. Okay. <laughs> All right, Kevin. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Sharif.